enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. when it comes to traveling for the year. I'm still slowly moving into my new place, thanks to a very understanding mother who's very kindly letting me take my time with getting all of my shit out of her house. Um, I have a lot of it. (laughs) It's mostly books, which uh, I don't think will surprise anybody. All right, part of the reason this took an extra week is that I've been attempting to understand dark matter and dark energy enough to explain what they are. I also had to find a place to set up my podcasting equipment and a time to record that wasn't inconvenient for the people that I now live with. But mainly it's been research central here. I have pages and pages of notes from some very cool books, and I've just been struggling. I'll be frank, it's a struggle. Dark matter is confusing. Even an overview seems to require me to talk about particle physics. I'm not opposed to particle physics, but maybe you are. (laughs) I hope you aren't. There's some very silly names in particle physics, so bear with me and keep your ears and your hearts open for these silly names and confusing quantum concepts. I wanted to do this overview before I do my interview uh, with my friend who's getting her PhD in astrophysics, um, just to give folks an idea what dark matter is, uh, what its significance is in astronomy, and what kind of theories there are surrounding or rejecting it. That's a lot to cover, it's true. This is going to take two episodes. And after that, I'll go on to something less quantum. I'll list potential topics at the end of this podcast. Uh, I appreciate your feedback, Sika. I hear your voice, and I do want to talk about the Voyager and about Edmund Halley. If you want to cast your own vote for what I should research next, remember that you can tweet at me at hdinthevoid, all one word, or you can ask my Tumblr, which is, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. I actually listened to an episode of the podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class about dark matter years ago, before I ever even thought of doing a podcast myself. It was technically about the first person to theorize about the existence of dark matter, the Swiss astronomer Fritz Zwicky. He worked in California most of his life, and he worked with the astronomer Walter Bade, uh, who I mentioned in episode 5. Zwicky was incredibly ahead of his time with the theories that he built around supernovae and neutron stars, which I talked about in episode 6, and his theories about dark matter, and a neat little trick called gravitational lensing. He was plying his astronomical craft around the same time of Einstein, um, just after Hubble had published on his famous redshift distance relations. The realization that the universe is expanding cleared up a lot of our understanding about the way things in the universe work, but it did not clear up why there were so many light chemical elements. Hydrogen and helium are two of the most abundant elements in the universe, and that's kind of weird that so many light elements have survived since they were created by the Big Bang. The fact that the universe is expanding also didn't explain the motions of stars and galaxies, or the velocity dispersion of galaxies in clusters. 
Zwicky was investigating a galaxy cluster when he noticed that when he calculated the mass of the coma cluster by using the observed speeds of the galaxies as their gravities pulled on each other, he got a major difference from when he calculated the mass of the coma cluster using the light from all the galaxies that make up the coma cluster. I've talked about this before, but a star's mass can be calculated based on the type and amount of light it produces. So Zwicky used two different methods to determine the cluster's mass. The result of his mass calculation based on gravitational pulling was 10 times more than the result that he got by calculating mass based on light output. Zwicky concluded that the coma cluster must have a massive amount of unseen matter that had enough gravitational pull to keep all its rapidly moving galaxies from flying apart. He named this unobservable, entirely theoretical mass dark matter, and he published on it in 1933 in a paper titled The Redshift of Extragalactic Nebulae. No one liked Zwicky, though, on a professional level. He was abrasive and mean to his colleagues and said once, quote, Astronomers are spherical bastards. No matter how you look at them, they are just bastards. Which is a pretty strong statement to make about people who you work with and see at conferences and in the lab and stuff. So everyone kind of like aggressively forgot about him and his ideas after his death in 1974. It took the astronomer Vera Rubin to bring dark matter into the mainstream. She did it in a way that was weirdly close to the techniques of the female computers I talked about in episodes 5 and 6, which is kind of a strange coincidence. With fellow astronomer Kent Ford and his very sensitive spectrometer, she began observing the orbital speeds in spiral galaxies and applied the Doppler effect technique, where you use spectroscopic shifts in a star or galaxy to determine its speed. In 1970, Rubin and Ford found that stars far from the centers of galaxies, in the sparsely populated arms of these spiral galaxies, were moving just as fast as those closer to the center. In over 60 spiral galaxies, just as Zwicky had seen, Rubin and Ford saw that the visible mass of these galaxies didn't appear to have enough gravity to hold on to such distant, rapidly orbiting stars on the fringes of the spiral, which meant that there was a ton of unseen matter in the outer regions of galaxies that spread the mass and gravitational power throughout the galaxy, instead of concentrating it at the center. This meant that both gravitational force and orbital speed within spiral galaxies were similar throughout the entire galaxy itself for no discernible reason. Rubin and Ford had found even stronger evidence for Zwicky's dark matter. Around the same time, Morton S. Roberts and some other radio astronomers used radio telescopes to observe spiral galaxies and draw similar conclusions. It's important to note that none of these astronomers actually discovered dark matter. They just found some really weird anomalies in the motion of galaxies that implied there were unseen forces, and dark matter was a convenient explanation. Tore the spines from out of all of these self-help books Made myself a gun that not only shoots back Yet shoots through steel. Face a dark matter. With all that in mind, let's get talking about what dark matter is. We don't know what it is. No one has discovered it in laboratory conditions. No one has seen it, tested it, anything. Well, that was quick. It's also a useless statement, and it should also be followed up with, but we know what it isn't. Sometimes you have to start with what something isn't in order to get to what it is. 
This is also a continuing investigation. So, as of October 2017, this is what I understand dark matter to be. We do know a couple of facts about dark matter. We can't see it. That's how it got its name. It's not like it's Vanta Black, but we just can't see it. It doesn't emit visible light, x-rays, or infrared light. 25% of the universe's matter is dark matter. 70% is dark energy, which Wallace H. Tucker calls, quote, a mysterious force that causes the observed accelerating expansion of the universe. Total, 95% of the universe is dark, and the last 5% is normal matter. Normal matter is, for the most part, detectable and delectable. No, not the second thing, just the first thing. Normal matter is made up of atoms, which in turn are made up of some very specific kinds of particles, and particle physicists have arranged these particles by mass in order to classify them. Baryons are the heaviest, and baryon is from the Greek word for heavy. Some baryonic particles that you might have heard of are protons and neutrons, some of the components of atoms. Leptons are the lightest particles, and their name is from the Greek word for light, as in lightweight. Some leptonic particles you might recognize are electrons, and some that you might not recognize are neutrinos, tau particles, and muons. Mesons are the third type of particle, and they fall right in the middle in terms of weight, hence the name meson. I had never heard of the kinds of particles that are mesons, but if you're curious, pions and kaons are two types of meson. Weirdly, Swinburne University of Technology says that in astronomy, the term baryonic matter is used more loosely than it is in particle physics. Since protons and neutrons are always accompanied by electrons on the astronomical level, astronomers lump electrons in when they use the term baryonic to refer to all objects made of normal atomic matter, and they actually include black holes in baryonic matter. However, they do recognize neutrinos as leptons. Just a fun little divergence there. There are also ways to break down particles based on how they interact with each other. Fermions, named after the atomic physicist Enrico Fermi, they can't exist in the same state, at the same location, at the same time. That sounds like it would be a pretty standard thing on a larger scale. There can't be two of me in the same place at the same time. That's just not possible. But on the very small quantum scale, it's not a big deal for two of the exact same particle to exist in the same space at the same time. If a particle can do that, it's a boson. Protons, neutrons, and electrons are all fermions, as are leptons. A common boson particle that you might have heard of is a particle of light, a photon, uh, the particle that acts like a wave. There's also the Higgs boson, which was named for the theoretical physicist Peter Higgs, and was discovered in 2012 with the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland. It's very cool stuff. I remember reading about how it may have destroyed the universe. Very, very fun time. <laughs> Okay, so dark matter is not baryonic, leptonic, or mesonic, nor is it a fermion or a boson. In fact, no known type of particle fits with dark matter. How did people see it then? Well, apart from the realization that galaxies had excessive mass for their brightness, and that whole thing about how the objects on the outskirts of the galaxies were orbiting just as fast as the objects closer to the middle, the discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation, and then subsequently the discovery of temperature discrepancies in this radiation that should be a uniform temperature across the universe, helped to cement the idea that dark matter exists. While it operated between 2009 and 2013, the Planck satellite measured the dark matter content of the universe by looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation and seeing how dark matter clumped and drew the regular matter together to form galaxies. 
The Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe also helped measure cosmic microwave background radiation and determine the amount of dark matter that theoretically exists in our universe. Gravitational lensing is another way that astronomers can detect dark matter. When light from more distant sources passes near a galaxy cluster and all of the invisible dark matter inside of it, the cluster's massive gravity bends the light like a lens, showing us a warped image of the universe that we couldn't see otherwise. The amount of bending can reveal the amount of dark matter that a galaxy or galaxy cluster contains. This is all kind of hearkening back to how some planets were discovered when astronomers noticed anomalies in the orbits of other planets. I talked about how the planet Neptune was discovered due to how it affected the orbit of Uranus in episode 8, and this gravitational lensing is like that, but on a much larger galactic scale. All right, so we know what dark matter isn't. We know why we think it ex needs to exist. So let's talk about the theories of what dark matter could possibly be. There are folks who don't like the idea of mysterious, unknown particles that we haven't been able to generate and study on Earth. Mordechai Milgram, an Israeli physicist, has a model of modified gravitational theories that he believes would eliminate the need for scientists to keep searching for dark matter. It's called Modified Newtonian Dynamics, or MOND theory, and requires Newton's second law be modified for small accelerations. Newton's second law, if you joined me in forgetting his theories after taking a high school physics test, is when you push an object, the acceleration that object exhibits is directly proportional to how hard you pushed it, and it's inversely proportional to how much mass the object has. Modifying Newton isn't really that big of a leap if you realize that Einstein did it to explain gravity on a universal, planetary, galactic level. His conception of universal gravitation as a warping of space-time is nothing like Newton's gravity, but it accomplishes the same goal. Milgram's just proposing a change to Newton's laws on the small scale instead of the huge scale. There are also astronomers and astrophysicists who think that dark matter is actually just a weird object that we can't see, not a whole other set of particles. Because scientists are huge dorks, two potential objects that dark matter could be have the acronyms MACHO and WIMP. Both have their pros and cons as far as theories go. MACHO stands for Massive Compact Halo Object. There's an oxymoron right there at the beginning with the massive and compact, but since it's describing potential objects in the vein of black holes, which are incredibly dense mass in a very small space, we'll let that go. Machos are objects made of baryonic matter, and they may be neutron stars, black holes, or brown dwarves. Neutron stars and black holes result from a star going supernova, and they're actually detectable because the supernova leaves a cloud of gas behind. So if they're a candidate for dark matter, they'd have to somehow travel far away from that explosion. So that then it would mean that we couldn't see them anymore. Brown dwarf stars are stars that are too small to shine brightly, but they have enough mass to cause that gravitational lensing effect that is a signature of dark matter. Scientists have found these brown dwarfs, but nowhere near enough of them to account for all the dark matter in a galaxy. WIMP stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particles. These are kind of like a theory of dark matter particles, but with a twist. They're weakly interacting because they can pass through ordinary matter without affecting it. They're massive, just in the sense of having mass. I feel like the scientists were stretching it with the acronym here. If they exist, they would have been created at the very beginning of the universe, with the Big Bang. And any that still exist would have had to survive the annihilation that happens when a particle comes in contact with its antiparticle. Uh, this is particle physics, I'm sorry. When a particle meets its antiparticle, which has the same mass but a different charge, they annihilate and create a little flash. 
It happened a lot early on in the universe when it was small and dense, but it's not as common anymore for a particle to meet its antiparticle unless they're created in a lab setting. The problem with wimps... (laughs) Well, okay, wimpy people aren't a problem. The issue with the theory of weakly interacting massive particles is that these things have basically no mass. Any particle that is a potential WIMP is too small to detect, except the neutrino, which has been detected but doesn't have enough mass to contribute to dark matter in any way. In the book Chandra's Cosmos, which came out this year, in 2017, Wallace Tucker lists other possibilities of dark matter, and they are, quote, sterile neutrinos, axions, asymmetric dark matter, mere dark matter, and extra-dimensional dark matter. I have no idea what any of that is, and he didn't go into any more detail about any of it. Instead, he goes on to talk about three theoretical categories of dark matter. The categories depend on how fast the hypothetical dark matter particles were moving when galaxies began to clump together and form. There is hot dark matter, when particles were moving near the speed of light as galaxies began to cluster up. There's cold dark matter, which could happen if particles were moving slowly when proto-galaxies formed. And there's warm dark matter, which could have happened if the dark matter particles were moving at speeds between hot and cold dark matter. This is some Goldilocks shit, but unlike in Goldilocks, cold dark matter seems like the way to go if you want to pick one of these categories for dark matter. Cold dark matter explains why clouds of matter clumped together fast enough to form galaxies. Computer simulations performed in 2015 by Rachel Somerville and Ramil Dave support the cold dark matter model too, which is a cool use of the new technology available to astronomers today. Do you like the idea of dark matter? It does make things simple if it, if it exists. It doesn't interact with matter at all except through gravity. It's not affected by magnetic fields. It doesn't lose energy through radiating anything like light or radiation. It's a neat concept, and it makes the math of the universe work, as far as I can tell, with my limited interest in how mathematical models work. Do you think dark matter is unnecessary? It's true that it's a suspicious concept. There should be more cold dark matter present at the center of a galaxy than at its edges, just accounting for gravity and mass and spin and logic. But as Tucker says, quote, the concentration of dark matter is leveling off rather than peaking sharply in the central regions of this cluster. That may mean that dark matter particles interact with each other in non-gravitational ways, which would require more revisions of the cold dark matter model. I think you could go either way on dark matter, existing or not existing. I mean, that's just based on my struggle to understand the theory behind it. I absolutely want to talk to my astrophysicist friend about all of this and get her hot take, but I hope this was a useful overview of dark matter. It's a theoretical particle that explains a couple of really strange things about galaxy rotations and mass. We may have to revise old models of gravity to come up with an explanation that doesn't use dark matter. Does it all make sense? I'm asking this honestly. I want to know if I should go slower with all of this. It's theory and physics, two things that can be very confusing, and I really do want to make this accessible to people. The next episode, I'm going to talk about dark energy, which I don't even know about yet because I focused so hard on dark matter, so get ready for that! Go ahead and let me know if, after this next episode, I should research the Voyager Golden Records, the transit of Venus, the history of the U.S. space program, or Edmund Halley. Hit me up via Tumblr Ask or tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. I'm also on iTunes, so if you can subscribe there, you can rate this podcast, and if you feel moved to write a kindly review, I would be extremely grateful. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it cools my pillowcase. 
I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to cool down your pillow, too. The next episode should be up on November 6th. You can check out sources, music credits, a vocab list, a scientist list, and the episode transcript at all one word, fill the void, dash with, dash space, dot tumblr, dot com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. <laughs>